right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Joe Turner, host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. I'm coming at you from Wichita, Kansas, where I pay $2.99 for a gallon of gas, $2.49 for a gallon of milk, and about $0.69 cents for a dozen eggs. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Been a crazy couple of weeks. Um, super stoked and excited to report to you that the podcast is doing really well. Uh, last podcast uh, episode with uh, Micah Gaudet on ChatGPT was the best performing uh, podcast episode on launch day. It's gotten a lot of really good traction on it. We'll get to that in a minute. But I'm just really thankful and appreciative of all the support I've been getting from everybody. Uh, please do not forget to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. It is very much appreciated. Uh, in this episode of the podcast, I want to kick around a couple ideas I have that may help your community avoid the sticker shock of a large rate increase on your next trash hauling contract. You might be able to use these ideas across other vendor negotiations inside your organization as well. I've also repeatedly talked about how my podcast is geared towards the ambitious public sector executive. So I want to talk about how you as a city manager, a public works director, a division head, can stand out and develop a reputation for being an innovative thinker or creative leader. You know, I read a lot of articles about city managers, city management, and local government each week. It's a scary number, to be honest. Um, I don't even want to say how many articles I read. I lose count, but it's a lot. And uh, as a result of these articles, I see themes and trends that emerge across the country. And something I've been noticing, and, and this will not shock you, obviously, is that there's been a tremendous spike in prices residents are paying for goods and services. And in this episode, we're going to specifically talk about trash hauling services. Here are a few of the headlines that I've seen over the last few months that are kind of jaw-dropping. So if you go to Sebastian, Florida, they have Waste Management, who's their provider. They were the only bidder, and their rates are going to go up 35% which is not astronomical compared to some of the things I've seen, but that's also in addition to their service being cut in half. So they're paying 35% more for 50% less. Uh, they're being switched from twice a week service to once a week service down on Sebastian and paying for the privilege through the nose. Then you got Natchez, Mississippi. They received two bids, but the lowest bid they got was at $26.66 for a month. But residents were paying $9.97, so residents are nearly going to be tripling their, their rate increase. That's obviously quite a bit of sticker shock. Bristol, Pennsylvania, they announced in May that their trash bills were going to go up 85%, and they only had one bidder. Uh, and then Farrell, Pennsylvania, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, they only had one bidder as well, and their new rate is going to go up 153%. So residents will go from paying $204 per year to $516 per year. Now, before we delve into these issues of trash hauling and how you can possibly save money for your residents and how you can demonstrate that you are an ambitious uh, public sector manager, uh, that you're above average in competency in the way you approach these uh, problems and these tasks, uh, I want to tackle a few housekeeping items before we get to all that. Last week's ChatGPT uh, podcast with Micah Gaudet was fantastic. Uh, I've received several messages from listeners who said that they literally tried ChatGPT for the first time because of that episode, and they were blown away by it. They shared with me about how it has already saved them time and opened up their minds to a multitude of other possibilities. It was really exciting to get this sort of feedback because I've shared repeatedly that I want to have nothing but bangers on this podcast, right? I only want to put out podcast episodes that have real value to you, the listener. And so when I get feedback from listeners saying, hey, I tried this today because of your podcast, 
it's uh, it warms the cockles of my heart. Let's put it that way. Also in the podcast, I challenged Micah to put together a comprehensive course designed specifically for public sector professionals. And I put together a form for those interested in the course uh, on ChatGPT to fill out so we can kind of gauge interest. The amount of interest we received from that form surprised me. Well, I should say it surprised both of us, actually. So he's going to start building out a course. We hope to have some more information for you uh, soon in future podcast episodes. But in the meantime, don't forget to catch Micah over on his YouTube channel. You can find him over at Gaudet GPT. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-G-P-T. Also, let's talk about death of the public servant. Daniel Rosemond is the former city manager of Hallandale Beach, Florida. He's also the author of the book, Death of the Public Servant. It's not death of a public servant. It's death of the public servant. Dan commented recently on a LinkedIn post of mine about 10 days ago, and we discussed the idea of him being a guest in the podcast. He uh, kindly agreed to send me a free media copy, which was kind of cool to receive. I got an actual media copy. I'm I'm now legit. So that was pretty awesome. So I did some research. I blew through that book. It literally took me, I think, two and a half evenings, three evenings to uh, read that book. It was, uh, I couldn't really put it down. It was just great stuff. And I got to tell you, it was a little surreal reading it because over the last 10 months, I've received so much feedback from my followers and readers who say, hey, Joe, you're saying the stuff that I'm thinking. Are you saying the stuff that we're all thinking out loud, but are afraid to say publicly? And you know, when I was reading Daniel's book, it was like, whoa, that's exactly what I've been saying in my LinkedIn post. And so I kind of, the shoe was on the other foot. And I even had to text Dan and say, hey, uh, this is a trip because you're really saying the things that I'm saying in my uh, LinkedIn post in your book. And we'd never even read each other's content, obviously, before that happened. So uh, we're definitely on the same page. And um, anyway, I read the book. It's a quick read. And I'm going to be interviewing him soon. Uh, Many of you have commented or messaged me and told me that you have ordered his book and started reading it. Now, I want to give the readers the opportunity to record their own questions so that Dan can answer them in the podcast. I want to have more engagement with the audience. I want this to be not my show, but I want it to be our show. And I want you as city managers and public sector executives to feel that you're a part of the show and that you can be involved in it. So if you really want to ask Dan a question about his book or about his experience, you're going to need to read that book ASAP. Okay. And then you can get those uh, questions to me. I'm going to, I'm going to push out some information about that on my LinkedIn page about how you can send me a, a voice note or a voice question. So please stay tuned for that. Also, I received one of the nicest, coolest, amazing messages this week from a city manager. It, it blew me away, to be honest. And I wanted to share it with you. Uh, they wanted to remain anonymous, but their message to me was so impactful. It just really moved me. And I just, I felt compelled to share it with you. So this city manager writes, Joe, thank you so much for reaching out. I'm one of those city managers who was recently fired publicly and in violation of the state's open meeting laws, despite having had only excellent performance reviews. I'm also one of those city managers who's afraid to comment on your posts, though I'm incredibly grateful for your work on our profession's behalf. Your podcast is wonderful. I've had your first episode on repeat since it became available. I may be single-handedly responsible for the excellent ratings. Thank you for what you're doing. It's inspiring and more helpful than you can know. I mean, wow. Um, Thank you so much to you who wrote that. You know who you are. Um, It just really touched my heart to get a message like that. And I got to tell you, when I get that sort of feedback, it really motivates me and makes me want to push forward. Um, So thank you very much. I'm just tremendously grateful for that kind of feedback. It, It really, really, really moved me. 
One more thing before we get onto the meat of the episode here. I want to do a quick news update because I think this is important. You know, I post a lot of stuff in my LinkedIn feed. It, it can get a little negative at times, obviously, or tip, uh, tip a lot more negative than maybe I want it to be. I've been spotlighting city managers who have been humiliated publicly and fired, uh, oftentimes in violation of state law and so forth and so on. And I wanted to update you on three stories that I think are really good. Uh, these are based off posts I've done on my, on my page over the last several months. The first one is in Tacono, Colorado. That's for city manager A.J. Eukert. If you don't know, here's the situation. A.J. Eukert had worked for the city for 20 years. And in this meeting, at the beginning of the meeting, the mayor gave him a, an award for 20 years of service to the city. So he recognized him for his 20 years of service. And then 45 minutes later, literally the same meeting, the council majority decided to fire uh, Mr. Eukert in very humiliating fashion at the meeting. It was crystal clear that there were open meeting law violations and that they had broken the law. And quickly, the um, the residents were in an uproar. Uh, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation found that they broke the law. And the residents literally recalled these council members in a couple months. Now, they only recalled two of the four. That's because one of the four had just been elected and was unable to be recalled due to state law. And the other uh, council member who was uh, one of the uh, part of the majority was not running for re-election or could not run for uh, re-election again in the fall. And so they were not eligible to recall. So they only recalled the people they could, and they did it in two months. So congratulations to the people of Decono. Congratulations to A.J. Eukert for being vindicated. Uh, what great news. And there's so often we see actions like this happen in local government, and there aren't any consequences. But here were actual consequences where two city uh, council members were recalled very quickly. And I'm very happy for um, that community. Now let's turn to Goddard, Kansas. They fired city administrator Brian Silcott, who'd served them faithfully for 15 years. Okay. Now what happened there was uh, there was a, a, a city council member by the name of Hunter Larkin. Uh, he was a former mayor who is now just a regular council member. They had a vacancy on the council that needed to be filled by appointment that night. He maneuvered to get this individual appointed and secured the votes to basically get rid of the city administrator. And this was all done in a span of eight minutes. And so basically in the span of eight minutes, the city councilman, Hunter Larkin, becomes the mayor. It's, everything gets orchestrated, clearly violation of open meeting laws. And they unceremoniously dump the city administrator who'd been there for 15 years uh, without warning. Okay. This caused an uproar, this made a national news attention. It was uh, on MSNBC, Daily Beast, the, our local paper out here, the Wichita Eagle, and the residents were in an uproar similar to Decono. So they threatened to do a recall. Now, the mayor decided that he was not going to suffer the indignity of a recall and opted to not run for re-election. And I believe the recalls kind of dissipated because of that, because he's, he's definitely trying to preserve his political career for the future and did not want to have a recall on his record. So he uh, basically not didn't resign, but he announced that he wasn't going to run for a re-election. And so that was some punishment dished out to uh, that individual. Uh, Silcott, uh, fortunately for him, he ended up in an even better place. So he ended up in the Kansas City metro area with Ottawa, Kansas. So he's got a, a better job now um, with comparable pay and benefits, I'm sure. And uh, I'm sure he's probably better off now as a result of this whole situation. So congratulations to him. And then we got Jonathan Lynn out in Rincon, Georgia. You might recall that I just posted about him a few weeks ago. He'd been there only for a few months, uh, just had a positive six-month review with his council or his commission, and then out of the blue, they decide they want to fire him. 
Now, the backstory is that he reported an employee, I believe, who was um, suspected of being involved in some sort of theft or nefarious activity. And I believe that employee is well-liked by some of the commission members. And I think that's what happened. So I don't know how an individual goes from from getting a great six-month review with a raise, increase in benefits, and nothing but praise. And then literally like a month or two later, they're being fired and there's really no good reason for it. So he appealed under his own uh, uh, local process. I don't, I'm not sure if it's part of his contract or the, or the city charter or whatnot. He appealed his firing and he got his job back, but now he's supposedly quote unquote on probation. But at least he got his job back. He can start looking for a new position if he wants or what have you. And he's not stuck drawing off, off his severance um, right away. I don't know what's going to happen there for him. But it was just nice to see a city manager get fired unfairly and then get their job back. So that was pretty exciting. Now let's turn our attention to the meat of the episode. And that is going to be uh, trash hauling bills and how you as a city manager, you as a public works director or a division head, how you might be able to take steps to minimize the negative impact of higher rates for your taxpayers, for your rate payers when it comes to their trash hauling bills. Having entered the city management profession in a non-traditional way, um, it gives me a different perspective on things. And I'm not saying it's right or it's better. It's just a different perspective. And, you know, I often use the term private sector mentality in cover letters, resumes, and interviews. Uh, but what does that mean when I when I say private sector mentality? You know, I want to read a quote, uh, something that I've written uh, many months ago, but I think is relevant to this discussion. And I, at one time I wrote to somebody and I said, quote, One of the biggest problems with government is you have a lot of employees that have no clue what it is like or what it takes to produce something of value in the free market and to do it well enough and with enough volume to be able to sign the front of the check. They have signed the backs of checks their entire life. Now, I do not want you all to think that I have an antagonistic view towards public sector employees or that I'm dismissive of their abilities. I'm not anti-public sector employee. What I'm trying to convey is that the mindset to compete in the private sector is dramatically different than to compete in the public sector. The risk and rewards enjoyed by the private sector are much more immediate and personal. Public sector employees do not feel the same sting of failure. Barring a major economic contraction, it is very rare for public sector employees to suffer when things go bad or a bad decision is made. Most mistakes are simply passed on to the citizenry, where the taxpayers essentially serve as a backstop. In trading vernacular, I would basically say that the public sector employees are long a free call option. And what that basically means is that when things go well, they benefit. And when things do not go well, they hardly suffer at all. You know, some of you listeners may disagree with this characterization and you may point out some incidents to prove your point. But I would argue that those are isolated occurrences, cherry picked to support your argument. There's no question in my mind that when bureaucrats, to use the pejorative word, screw up, they do not face the same consequences as private sector executives. It goes back to what I said earlier. Public sector employees do not have to kill to eat like private sector counterparts. Even when things go bad, there is a safe, reliable, and consistent paycheck landing in the bank account. You may not like this analogy, but I think public sector employees are the equivalent of zoo animals and and private sector uh, employees are essentially out roaming in the wild. Now, you can pick your poison. Each one has its own pros and cons, uh, but there's no question in my mind that the public sector employee enjoys a safe comfortable environment versus the private sector. Now, again, many listeners may take offense. That's fine. But I want you to go look in the mirror and in your heart of hearts, ask yourself the following question. Are you capable of going out into the private sector today and generating enough value that somebody would be willing to compensate you 
enough to keep a roof over your head and to feed your family? That's a, that's a real legit question to ask yourself. You know, are you capable of going out and generating enough value in the private sector marketplace today so you can sign the front of a check instead of signing the back of a check? Now, when we talk about having a private sector mentality or running government like a business, people get a little defensive and they get a little upset or irritated uh, on some sides and others are perfectly you know, on board with the idea or the concept. You know, for me, running a government entity like a business doesn't mean that you shut down and sell or remove or close divisions or departments or services simply because they do not generate enough revenue to offset their cost, right? I'm not talking about running government like a business or having a private sector mentality and therefore you must shut down the library because libraries never generate enough revenue to cover their costs. I'm not talking about shutting down pools because pools never recover their cost, right? What I'm talking about goes beyond just thinking about efficiencies and effectiveness and automation, right? You know, there's a lot of talk about having a private sector mentality or running a government like a business. And we think about the internal mechanisms of the entity. And that's fine. That's great. I, you know, I'm all for efficiency. I'm all for being more effective. I'm all for automation through tools like chat GPT or software or things of that sort of nature. Those are all, those are all great. But a private sector mentality goes beyond simply looking at your organization. You must be able to step outside of your organization, put yourself into the shoes of a private sector leader or executive, a small business owner, and understand the issues, factors, and drivers that impact your vendors. Now, we're talking about in the context of trash hauling contracts, and this can be used for any other you know, significantly sized contracts as well. So if you better understand the issues and what they're facing, you can potentially help create an environment that is more conducive to encouraging competition that will result in a benefit to your residents when it comes to a trash hauling contract. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But regarding the private sector mentality, how do you get it? Let's just say, for example, you've been in the public sector your entire life. You're like, okay, well, how do I get a private sector mentality? That sounds great. Well, if you do not possess a private sector mentality, then you need to take steps to better understand that perspective. And I'm not going to tell you to go get your MBA or give you a list of books on capitalism and free enterprise. Uh, I don't think that would be very helpful. What I would recommend is that you set up meetings with the business owners and executives in your city, in your jurisdiction, in your region. Tell them that you want to learn more about their business and the conditions and factors that impact their ability to grow and expand. It is okay to not know everything. I don't believe you need to pretend like you are a private sector genius. When I don't understand something, I instruct staff or a stakeholder or a business owner to talk to me like I'm a two-year-old. I will literally say something like, hey, I'm an idiot about this stuff. Please talk to me like I'm a two-year-old. I'm serious. I want to learn and have a better understanding of your perspective. And so please don't assume that I know what you're talking about. I find this to be very useful and disarming because humans are generally uh, very receptive to the idea of teaching others what they know. I find that humans really like to teach others and share their knowledge. It makes them feel good. Not only do they feel like they're an authority on the subject matter, but they enjoy helping people intrinsically. So if they feel like you're genuinely interested in learning, I have found that people will bend over backwards to explain it to you. I believe that individuals often fear like they are talking down to you, and if they dumb it down, they're going to be insulting. So because they don't want to offend you as a public sector executive, 
they might not get into the details the way you need them to better understand their dynamics begin because they don't want you to be embarrassed and they want to save face and all that. But if they believe you are genuinely curious and that you're not going to be offended and that you're going to invest the time to not only learn what they have to say, they're going to invest the time to teach you and share with you their real concerns and issues because they believe you are sincerely invested in them and want to be an ally or an advocate. Now, let's talk about risk factors in the private sector. We're not going to go on a lengthy, exhaustive dissection of all these risks, but I want to touch on a few. You know, when I was a trader and learning how to trade in Chicago out of college, you know, you learn that the biggest fear is uncertainty. It's not good news. It's not bad news. You can trade good news. You can trade bad news. You can you can have a plan or develop a plan for bad news. What business owners can't do is develop a plan for something that is unknown or uncertain. Uncertainty is one of the biggest risks that uh, private sector businesses and leaders fear. So as a public sector executive, if you can reduce the unknowns, the uncertainty uh, of something, you're going to be doing them a tremendous favor. And I think oftentimes we lose sight of the fact that in the public sector, we do things kind of on our own schedule, our own pace, and we're just sort of the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and people just have to adjust to what we're doing because we're the public sector and we make the rules. But I think that if you take some time to truly understand that the risk of uncertainty is a very palpable, very tangible thing that gives fear into the hearts of private sector leaders then that might help you understand how to maybe move your organization down a path to reduce and mitigate some of those fears by reducing the uncertainty, right? By speeding up the timelines because uh, private sector leaders do not want to waste time. They do not want to be left in the lurch. They don't want to have just this unknown hanging over their head, right? You know, businesses want to mitigate risk and minimize volatility. Um, I'll give you a simple example. Imagine you are a pool cleaning company, right? And you work in an area of the country where there's actual seasons, right? There's a pool on season and an off season. And so you have this predictable, quote unquote, volatility, right? You have the pool season opens, you know how many individuals you need to hire, you know what kind of supplies you need to order for the season just based off your historical trends and the number of uh, pools that you're managing, so forth and so on, right? Now imagine a world where the pool season was a year long and you had six months of bad times and six months of good times, but it's all interspersed and you have no idea when it's going to hit, right? You don't know if you're going to get two weeks bad here, followed by a month good, and then two months bad, followed by a two weeks good. How do you prepare and plan an organization, your business, to attack that environment? That is a completely different environment with so many different risk factors than, say, you have a known seasonal volatility to your business, right? So when you think about things like this from a private sector mentality, you got to try to reduce the risk, minimize the volatility and so forth and so on. So let's transition to a discussion about waste hauling and government contracts. Okay. What are some of the sources of volatility that impact a waste hauling company? The largest one that I can think of, especially pre-pandemic, would be fuel costs, right? When fuel spikes, uh, that causes an increase uh, in cost for the business, and that is something that is very concerning, right? And now that we're in a, in a post-pandemic sort of environment, what do we see now? We see 
a lot of risk and volatility with um, securing trucks and equipment and labor, right? You know, I have a, I have a local uh, trash hauling company, a family-owned business in the region I currently work in that services my city. And, you know, I was talking to the owner recently, and he said, hey, you know, we're looking at 18 to 24-month delivery times on trash trucks and other sorts of equipment. And then uh, they also have some issues a little bit with labor, not as much as some other businesses they are a family owned business and, and they have a really good reputation. Um, but when you think of trash hauling companies and they have the risk of fuel and then they have the risk of say trucks and equipment, not being able to secure that in a, 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 in a decent period of time, that's pretty debilitating, right? The same owner was telling me that they used to be able to get any part they needed for their trucks and their vehicles overnight. It was never, never an issue. You might have to pay a little bit of a premium, uh, but you could get it. Now they can go weeks or months and not be able to get certain supplies. So, you know, it used to be when I was in business school back in, you know, 1999, I'm dating myself here. You know, they had something called like, you know, just in time inventory, right? Where you just basically kept just enough inventory in your, on your, uh, on your premises that you needed because you didn't want to soak up your capital with extra inventory that was just sitting there, not earning you a return on your investment. Right? So what this business owner told me is that now they're having to order, you know, uh, massive amounts of tires and filters and brake pads and things of that sort of nature, because they couldn't get it before, or they didn't know how long it was going to take them to get it. So now you have, not only are they soaking up uh, financial resources by, you know, possessing this inventory that's producing no immediate value or return on the investment. They also are taking up space as far as in their facilities and so forth and so on. So all that to mean is like, you know, there's these different risk factors that go into what determines whether or not a trash hauling company can bid on a contract. When you look at government contracts now, I really want you to think about this from the perspective of a smallish regional waste hauler who is competing against the behemoths in the industry like waste management, republic services, waste connections, right? What if I told you that some smaller outfits really have no interest in bidding on your city's future contract? And it's not because they don't want to make money, right? It's, it's not because they don't want to grow. It's that they can't absorb the risk that comes with bidding on a contract of your size, okay? When you think about, say, a city of a moderately sized city, and they want to go out to bid for a trash hauling contract. Now, how many extra vehicles is that is that company going to have to purchase? How many extra employees is that company going to have to hire and train and staff up, right, in order to prepare to deliver services to that entity if they win that contract? It could be substantial. It could be a substantial capital investment. It could be a substantial increase in the amount of labor they need. And how do they prep in time to do that if they do get the contract? And the thing about this, they never know uh, when exactly if a contract that they have is going to expire, if they're going to get renewed on that contract. And if they have, a say, a, a sizable, uh, sizable city that they're currently servicing, and that city decides to go with another vendor, then what do they do with the employees that now they don't need or the vehicles that are now sitting idle and taking up space uh, because they don't need all those vehicles to service that volume of business anymore? So what can we do as public sector executives to put ourselves in a better position to secure lower rates, lower bids on behalf of our residents? I would like to give you six potential ideas or solutions or tactics about how you can go out and Keep the pressure on these waste hauling vendors to not jack up the rates on your ratepayers. Okay. One is proactively engage these waste hauling vendors, these companies in your region, 
and meet with them. Go out, probe them with a series of questions about what would make them more likely to bid on your upcoming trash contract. Okay, you're going to have to go out and get insight into their thinking, what pressures they're facing as a business. And you also want to convey to them that you are interested in their business, that you want them to bid on your contract. I think that actually will go a long way in getting these bids. I mean, one of the one of the patterns I'm seeing is that a lot of these trash line contracts are being inflated in jurisdictions where there's only one bidder. So you got to figure out how to get more competition on into this process so that you can keep your rates as low as possible. The second idea would be to increase the time between a successful bid and implementation or the start of that contract. If I told you earlier that a waste hauling business has informed me that they're looking at 18 to 24 month delivery times for vehicles, then how do you expect a small regional operator to be a serious competitor for a waste hauling contract if they got a bid on it today and start delivering services in six months, but yet it's gonna take them 18 to 24 months to get a vehicle or vehicles enough vehicles to supply or provide services to your jurisdiction. That, that doesn't make sense. So I think what we need to be start thinking about as public sector executives is how do we allow our vendors to be more competitive? And I think one way to make them more competitive is to give them more time to ramp up and prepare to deliver those services in the event that they win the contract. Third, if you increase the length of the contract, you're going to smooth out the volatility for these uh, operations, right? Especially for the smaller operators, the regional operators, okay? Um, the longer the contracts are, that inherently smooths out the volatility and gives them more time to prepare and adjust uh, their operations and so forth and so on. So um, if you are doing, if you're used to doing like a five-year contract, I think you really need to start looking at uh, possibly extending those contract lengths. Now, again, when I talk about extending the contract length and extending the period of time between a successful bid and the delivery of service, Ask the vendors this. Ask the ask the companies that you are looking to engage with if that will be beneficial. I could be wrong. I don't think I am. Uh, I could be wrong in certain instances, but I think by and large, those factors will logically be receptive or positively received by these vendors. Fourth, I think we need to be better about communicating with other cities and counties in our region uh, and trying to put our contracts on the same cycle so they're renewing and expiring in the same year, okay? I think when if we're better about this, and I've talked about this, about building a community for city banners, not only to develop better personal relationships between each other, but also stronger professional relationships. Now, if you were able to create a larger base of potential customers, you may attract a greater number of bidders, right? If, say, multiple cities are going up for bid at the same time, that could attract somebody who might not normally play in that region or that space, to make it worth their while to jump in and compete for that business. That could be a positive benefit. Conversely, however, if you are joining up with other cities, you might be able to create too big of a, of a project, right? Where a lot, of, a lot of small regional players, maybe they can't really compete because it's just too much to take on. It's too big of a, of a bite, right? They're just, they're just, it's just too big for them to handle. So what you might want to consider is having an option A where, you know, maybe uh, someone bids on all the jurisdictions or all the contracts at once and it's a winner take all, but also given the option of an option B where they bid on a piecemeal basis based off each jurisdiction and that the jurisdictions have the ability of divvying it up as they see fit on a per case basis, right? A fifth option would be if you want to start playing hardball uh, and if you can get your governing body support. How about you float the idea of your city taking the trash services in-house? The private sector hates the idea of losing market share to the public sector. And 
if there's some frustration in the public sector saying, hey, these prices are getting out of control. We think we can start doing this cheaper in-house. Uh, we think you're taking advantage of us. There's only you know one vendor. Uh, it's not a competitive marketplace. Why not we just do it ourselves? That might encourage more competition or uh, might encourage a vendor to not be so aggressive with the bidding, thinking that they're the only game in town and that you're stuck having to use them, right? And then on steroids, perhaps, would be you know working in concert with multiple government entities to float the idea of creating a waste management district that would service the entire um, spectrum of those communities, right? Um, this would be almost like taking it in-house but on steroids. Now, I can't speak to state laws and local politics on how that's going to be received, nor am I going to weigh into the pros and cons of privatization in this podcast and, and so forth and so on. The entire point of this po- podcast was to discuss ideas on how to keep costs lower for your residents and also give you an opportunity to present yourself as a more creative and innovative public sector leader. Most city managers and department heads are going to simply wait until it's time to renew the contract, put it out for bid, and report back the results to your the governing body, and they're going to say, "Hey, this is what the this is what the market is. This is we only got one bidder. This is what they gave us." Um, but I believe elite public sector managers can actually go an extra step and try to fight on behalf of the residents, and you can also communicate that to your governing body so they know that you are going above and beyond and taking that extra step, right? That you're not just being a mediocre, this is how we've always done it type city manager. So with these ideas, you're taking a proactive approach and demonstrating to your governing body that you've been working hard to advocate on behalf of the taxpayers. And that's going to resonate, you know, by taking this proactive approach and communicating with your governing body, I believe they will respect and appreciate your efforts and it will help you burnish your reputation and standing with them. So in conclusion, I would recommend you go and seek out potential vendors, you meet with them, express your desire that they bid on your future contract and learn what you can do to encourage their bidding or make your contract more palatable or enticing and so forth and so on. You need to fight like hell to get more than one bidder. So many of these contracts that are ballooning out there is because cities are only securing one bidder and it's the only game in town. And I think they're getting screwed because of that. I I don't know for sure, but I think that's what's happening. So then you also need to start asking for bids uh, much earlier than you've done in the past, recognizing that it takes a tremendous amount of capital and labor for a business to staff up and prepare to take on a new contract of significant size. You also are going to want to look at extending the length of the contracts you typically enter into, especially if they're less than 10 years. And I really think that if, if you have any issues with that, those last two points I made about you know, doing the bidding earlier and extending the length of the contract, bring those points up in conversations with the vendors and ask what their take is. See if they want longer contracts. See if they'd like to have a greater time in between the successful bid and the implementation. I would, I'd be curious to see what those perspectives, what perspectives you hear from the vendors. And then try to communicate with your regional partners, your, your, your fellow city, uh, your city managers in the region, your county governments. See if you guys can pool your energy together in various forms, whether it's all being on the same contract cycle uh, term, ending at the same time so you guys can bid together or secure uh, more interest, uh, whether it's taking it in-house or, again, forming a, like a waste management district to put more pressure on the uh, private sector participants to let them know that, hey, you're tired of seeing these rates get raised, you're tired of seeing them increase dramatically, and you're trying to fight like hell to get a better rate for your ratepayers and for your citizens, okay? So I really think that even if you're not successful in getting some positive results with these tactics, the ability to communicate to your governing body that you're being proactive and that you're looking out for them will go a long way in helping you professionally. And at the end of the day, I've said time and time again, 
Uh, this podcast is for ambitious public sector executives who want to level up. And I really think that if you approach these uh, this waste hauling contracts with some of these ideas and suggestions that I've put forth, that it will benefit you and ultimately also benefit your, your rate payers, okay? So this is Joe Turner, host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. If you really enjoyed this content, please uh, rate and review it on your platform of choice. And uh, don't forget to check out uh, my webpage, uh, citymanagerunfiltered.com, or check me out on LinkedIn. I am LinkedIn uh, at City Manager. That's my customized handle if you want to get a hold of me. Until next time, thank you very much. <laughs>